What's up everybody? Welcome back to the channel. I can't believe it's finally here. The Deep Dive Season 6. We are going through First and Second Kings. I'm so glad to be here. I hope you are as well. Let's get into it. Kings of Compromise Part 1. First and Second Kings, ladies and gentlemen, part one of this series. Two years ago, we went through the life of David. Last year, we went through the book of Romans. We're kind of picking back up from two years ago on the heels of the life of David, entering into the life of Solomon, and then the kings that follow Solomon in Israel's history. Not good stories, lots of uh, depravity, and most importantly, compromise. So when we talk about compromise, let's get the basis down. And today on The Deep Dive, we're not going to cover a lot of the text, but we're going to talk about the foundation, the laying the foundation for a great house on which we're going to build, I believe, a great season of biblical teaching for you. Compromise. Let's talk about that. Okay. The word compromise, it can be a noun, it can be a verb. In the noun version, it means an agreement or settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. So right there, compromise is reached by making concessions. That means giving up some ground. That means doing things you wouldn't do, believing things you wouldn't believe normally, but you do so because you want an agreement. You want a settlement with someone that's not like you. Now, in business, that's necessary. And in personal relationships, that can also be necessary. But when it comes to moral underpinnings of your life, beware of compromise. When it comes to where your trust is, what you define reality by, uh, who is in charge of you, right? That's where the compromise cannot be had. That's where you have to back up, reassess who you are, understand scripture, and stand your ground. The second way we can define compromise as a verb, accepting standards that are lower than is desirable. That's the definition. So you're accepting standards. You're doing things you'd never do because you need, I don't know, people to like you. You want to fit in. You don't want to look weird, stand out, all those kind of things. Well, Israel had that problem. Israel made tons of compromises. Now, they had done so under the judges and in the king's age, first and second kings, they do so exponentially. So much so that they end up in um, exile to a foreign nation whom God raised up to judge his people. So like I said, we're going through first and second kings. Let me talk about the context of these two books before we get into the text of these books. And then let me also talk today about why now, as I've already alluded to, what we're seeing now, we've seen before, and it happened in first and second kings. But I always like to approach a Bible study like this. We don't just open the page and start reading and then discussing. Let's look at the contextual history around 1 and 2 Kings. Let's look at what period of history 1 and 2 Kings addresses. And particularly as it relates to God's chosen people, the people of Israel. Because Israel is a test case, a picture, if you will, of what the church is today. As Israel was chosen and called, so the church is chosen and called. As Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, so the church is the light to the nations. As Israel was God's means by which he would bless others and bless the world and change and shape the world, so too the church is the means by which God would change the world and shape the world and bless the world. So we have to understand, when we read Israel's history, we are also talking about our present context. So let's get a hold of where does First and Second Kings fit in the narrative history of ancient Israel because then we can take a look at ourselves and where we are. Now, big screen, we have the Egyptian period where Israel was enslaved for 400 years. Very familiar period of time, but it is followed quickly by Moses who, 
uh, enacts 10 plagues under the power of God, leads the people of Israel out of slavery and into the wilderness. Now they fail to believe God. And so for 40 years, they have to wander in the wilderness. They don't trust God. They put God to the test seven times, the book of Numbers says. And one generation dies off and another generation is raised up. We call that generation the Joshua generation. Joshua is the successor to Moses and he leads the people of Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And they take hold of the promised land, but then they don't do the whole job. They start to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. They start to compromise under the judges. And so God has to raise up men, good men and bad men and medium men and men who start off great, but men who end terribly. And the last you know, judge of Israel that is probably most famous is Samson. And he starts off just lusting after all these Philistine women. And then he has a couple of victories. And then eventually he gets caught up in Philistine women again. And the rest is history. It's a picture of Israel where they are spiritually, really. And as Samson goes, so goes the nation. As the judges go, so goes the nation. That's true today, too isn't it? And so after the period of the judges, there's a guy named Samuel whom God raises up and he is chosen to not only lead Israel as a judge, but then eventually the people demand a king, as we talked about in season three on this channel, that they demand a king like all the other nations, right? They want a king, season four, sorry, that was, that was season four, yeah, where they call for a king like all the nations, all the other nations, and God gives them a king like all the other nations. He gives them uh, Saul, who is a very self-centered, egotistical king. And God rejects Saul because of his self-serving nature and his disobedience to God's word. And God raises up a guy named David who has a heart after God. And then David really, look at the trajectory over the Israel's history, is just they're starting to really become this example, this pillar of godliness for the nations around them. They're doing, they're fulfilling the original purpose of Israel that God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And David leads them all the way up, all the way up almost to the pinnacle, in spite of his faults, and he has many faults, but in spite of that, he empowers them, he secures them, he gives them safety and riches, and, and, and most importantly, worship is instituted properly under David, the temple and the sacrifices are instituted properly under David, and Israel is becoming a light to the nations. Now, David wants to build a temple for God, but God says, no, your son's going to do this. Now, this is a picture also of Jesus. The son of David builds the true temple for God. That is the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it is illustrated through the life of Solomon, who is David's son, chosen to build the physical temple in ancient Israel about 900 to 800 BC. Now, you'll look here on the screen with me, if you will. Let's go full screen again. That the pinnacle of Israel's history is right here under Solomon. But if you look closely, you'll see that there's already a downward trajectory. And that is because Israel's descension into immorality and godlessness begins under King Solomon as he starts to make foreign alliances through marriage with other nations. He starts to compromise. He starts to uh, dial back his own standards to secure his nation's power and prosperity. And he starts to set the table, as we're going to get into in 1 Kings, he starts to set the table for the compromise that follows in his lineage through Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, and, and many other kings who lead Israel into further levels of compromise and ultimately their destruction. We have to talk about this because it will destroy you. Compromise will destroy you. Compromise will 
cause confusion, uh, misdirection. It will cause you to miss your calling. It will cause you to feel miserable because you know you're not living the way you're created to live. And that's what happened to Israel. And if we look at the back end of Solomon's reign, and this is the this is the history we're looking at through this season. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Look at it with me on the screen here as we see the period of history that First and Second Kings covers. Here's what it is right here. All that is, all that is in that uh, blue rectangle. And you have division, you have political allegiances to foreign nations, you have idolatry, and this is a 400-year period where Israel really just kind of loses its calling, loses itself, loses its prosperity, success, and stability. And then if we just move the screen over a little bit, you will see here that on the backside of First and Second Kings, you have the Babylonian exile, which becomes... Uh, they go from uh, domination under Babylon to domination under the Medes and then domination under the Persians. Then God raises up the, uh, the, the, the latter days prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, these men who lead Israel back to the promised land. Even then, after they rebuild the temple, there's a small little dissension into immorality again where they start <laughs> compromising with the nations around them. Well, God raises up Malachi. He's the last prophet of the English Old Testament, the Christian Old Testament. And he calls God's people back to putting him first. And they do. But then there's 400 years of silence. And there's a lot that happens in the history of Israel during that time. Uh, the Maccabean revolt, uh, Judas Maccabeus, uh, the the um, compromise with the Greek culture, and, and so on and so forth. So, so what you're seeing here is that what we're going to watch during the first and second kings period right here is nothing new. It is a constant battle for God's people to not compromise with the people around them. We should not be influenced by the world. We should influence the world. And sadly, the church is a lot like Israel right now under First and Second Kings. We've got division within the church. We've got political allegiances. There's a lot of Christians that are more right-wing than they are in God's word. There's a lot of Christians who are more left-wing than they are in God's word. When, when Roe v. Wade was annulled by the Supreme Court a few months ago, I remember going online and seeing right-wing Christians celebrating and left-wing Christians, Christians lamenting the end of the constitutional, quote-unquote, constitutional abortion right. And, and so what we have is we have a divided church. We have a church that is more political than it is scriptural. We have a church that is idolatrous. That's the next stage in Israel's dissension and decay. They start uh, worshiping the pagan gods, the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the, the gods of the nations around them. And, and they lose their witness. They lose their light. They lose their influence upon their culture. And we do well to study First and Second Kings now so that we learn from their mistakes Understand that this is nothing new. It's always going to be a challenge in your life to compromise your standards and, 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 and give up ground spiritually because it's hard to stand for truth in an age of confusion and lies. And yet there are some things we can learn from these incredible passages. Who does God use? Who does he preserve? How does he work? As, as the world becomes utterly corrupt, how does God work to preserve for himself a people? 400 years of silence, by the way, let me just back, back end this map here on the screen, is followed by what? The New Testament, John the Baptist shows up and says, prepare the way of the Lord. So that's the history we're looking at in Israel. And I bet there's some of you right now that are asking me this question. Um, 
How does Israel's history relate to us? Are you saying that America is a Christian nation? And I am saying no to that question. Uh, is America a Christian nation? The answer to that is it's complicated. And, and the reason why it's complicated is not because we have some kind of constitutional agreement with God. We don't. We don't. But there's no question that there is a profound influence of Christianity on the American story. And, and I want to unpack this for a moment because if we're going to properly identify with the, with the lessons of First and Second Kings, we have to understand that we, right now, historically, are pretty much right there without the covenantal agreement of God between uh, covenantal agreement between God and our nation. Like there is no scriptural covenant with God's people. Oh, by the way, new feature. New Bible camp today, uh, this year on the deep dive. Do you like it? Do you like it? It's a little bit more clean cut and everything. Anyway, um, there is no scriptural agreement uh, between God and America. Of course not. But but America is profoundly, profoundly influenced by the Christian faith. Uh, Mark David Hall, Herbert Hoover, distinguished professor of political science at George, science at George Fox University, says the following. Although the founders were profoundly influenced by Christianity, they did not design a constitutional order only for fellow believers. And then what does he say here? He says, they explicitly prohibited religious tests for federal offices. They were committed to the proposition that all men and women should be free to worship God or not as their consciences dictate. In short, while America did not have a Christian founding in the sense of creating a theocracy, its founding was deeply shaped by Christian moral truths. More important, it created a regime that was hospitable to Christians, but also to practitioners of other religions. So, no, America did not have a Christian founding. Of course not. No, there's no scriptural covenant between America and God. Secondly, um, it was deeply shaped by Christian moral truths. And a lot of the benefits of our current culture and nation is because of the influence of Christianity. I talk about that ad nauseum on this channel and just go back through the, the, the years of deep end study and looking at the world and looking at education and looking at the good that Christianity has brought to America and particularly the cultural West. It is without argument. There's no argument there. And, and if you read some of our founding documents, such as this, the Declaration of Independence, for instance, you know, uh, these, these principles that, that we are endowed by our Creator uh, with inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, further on in the text of the Declaration, it, rec it, re it regards the laws of nature and of nature's God. Uh, it appeals to the supreme judge of the world, uh, reliance on the protection of divine providence. These are languages shaped by Christian faith throughout our country's history. Consider the first president, um, uh, George Washington, who delivered him his farewell address that of, quote, all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. That's our first president speaking there. Um, also, you could go to his Thanksgiving address where he institutes the, the celebration of Thanksgiving. And just, you can read this later, but just filled with texts that regard the providence of Almighty God, obeying His word, grateful for His benefits, imploring His protection and favor, on and on and on. He calls for thanksgiving and prayer um, to get the favor of Almighty God upon this country. Uh, this is the institution of thanksgiving, right? And now what is thanksgiving in America but just a day of feasting, football, and family? But where's the faith? 
right? Where's the faith in modern American life? It is dissipating at a rapid pace. And even the statistics bear this out as the fastest growing population, spiritually speaking, in our country are those without any Christian or religious influence. The nuns, they call them, N-O-N-E-S. No religion, no spiritual affiliation whatsoever. But it wasn't always like that in this country. And we have to understand that. We have to be honest about our history. We have to be honest that uh, John Adams once wrote about our Constitution. Uh, He said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other people. And he wrote that as he, uh, in a letter to the Massachusetts militia in October uh, 1798. Um, the darling of secularists in our country right now is perhaps Thomas Jefferson, who we credit with the separation of church and state. But that really actually should be credited to a guy named Roger Williams in the 1600s, who did not want to force the Native Americans to convert to Christianity, but rather Uh, share the gospel and let the Holy Spirit lead them to himself instead of enforced religion, right? That's a value that I think everybody should get on board with. So while Roger Williams was the impetus behind the separation of church and state, a lot of secularists love to point to Thomas Jefferson as the the father of separation of church and state. Um, Just some facts about that, but to, to underline the fact that Thomas Jefferson was not as much of a secularist as the atheists and agnostics of our country like to believe. Uh, For instance, uh, he did write that letter to the Danbury Baptist Association that there was a wall of separation between the church and state, but he also issued calls for prayer and fasting as governor of Virginia. Uh, He dropped a bill stipulating when the governor could appoint days of public fasting and humiliation and thanksgiving uh, to punish disturbers of religious worship worship and Sabbath breakers. Man, where where was that during COVID lockdown? Amen. (laughs) Let's punish some people who disturb religious worship, right? And, And then he proposed that the nation adopt a seal containing the image of Moses extending his hand over the sea, causing it to overthrow or overwhelm Pharaoh and his, and, his, and his army. And the model rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That comes from Thomas Jefferson. He also closed his second inaugural address by encouraging all Americans to join him in seeking, quote, the favor of that being in whose hands we are, who led our forefathers as Israel of old. The, the, these are indisputable facts that the founders of our country were profoundly, and I mean that by by intention, profoundly influenced by Christianity. Yes, there are a lot of parallels between Israel and her chosenness of God, uh, although covenantally, and America's kind of foundation in those who knew that without that God, we would not last, we could not last, we would fall apart. We would divide, we would get politically heated, we would eventually turn into idolaters and ultimately destroy ourselves, which might be where our country is on the brink of becoming. We don't know. We pray for the opposite, but that's why we do this content. That's why we bring you this channel. Subscribe to the channel and make sure that you know when we are live by hitting that notification bell. Uh, One last quote from Thomas, uh, no, sorry, George Washington. This from, I believe, his farewell address Watch what he writes. Oh, no, this is not his farewell address. This is him writing in 1778. But referring to the providence of God on this country's founding. And and there's a lot to be said about that. But he says, quote, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. 
That, you know, if you don't believe that God's providence is involved in America's founding, then you're an infidel. You're worse than an infidel and, and more than wicked. And you have not gratitude enough to acknowledge God's obligations or your obligations upon God for the founding of this country. Uh, David McCullough, who wrote the book 1776 and underscores uh, what he calls the incredible circumstances, fate, luck, providence, the hand of God that intervenes so often in America's founding. There, there is a profound influence, not just on the morality of America, but on the founding of America, just like Israel of old. So again, no scriptural covenantal agreement between God and America, but plenty of evidence, historical evidence and written evidence that the Christian faith, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, profoundly shaped the country of America and by a greater implication, the cultural West. Now, most people don't believe this anymore. And the reason why is because of a man named Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn wrote a rewrite of America's history only highlighting all of the bad parts. So slavery was a part of America's history. Very profoundly evil. The slave trade, profoundly evil. Totally unacceptable according to scripture. Go to 1 Timothy and you'll see it. Slave trading outlawed scripturally. Um, you can't relate the chattel slavery of the 18th century and 17th century in this country to the slavery mentioned in the Bible. They are completely different. They have their similarities, but they're completely different. They were not race-based. They were not color-based. They were not uh, slave trade-based. It was a different kind of slavery. Still bad, but totally different than what our country experienced in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. But what, what Howard Zinn did was he wrote a book named A People's History of the United States. And basically he just underlined outlined the entire history of America through the lens of everything that she did wrong. Everything. So slavery and Jim Crow and um, when our government, you know, had a, uh, other leaders of other countries assassinated through covert operations and he exposes all the bad of America's history. Hey, America has a lot of bad history, just like every other nation. But the good that America has brought to the world far outweighs the bad. And we talked about that on the British Empire yesterday on the deep end. But nonetheless, the question must be asked about Howard Zinn's commentary on the history of the United States is what would we say about your life if we were only told about the bad things you did? Like that's, that's basically what a people's history of the United States does. It, it just talks about the bad that America did. And if you only read about the bad of America, you're going to believe that America was a very, very bad place. And it's amazing that all the people who complain about how bad America is, they never actually want to leave America. And all the other nations want to come to America. It's kind of funny. Uh, but, but what would your life look like if all we ever did was talk about all the mistakes that you made? Look at the course of your life. I'm sure in your own life, there's a lot of good, but there's some bad. And if somebody wrote an autobiography on your life and all they did was highlight, oh, well, in, in seventh grade, he cheated on the math test. And in uh, junior prom, he uh, you know, danced with a, a different girl and made out on the, on the, on the dance floor. And, and then he, you know, he looked at uh, the, the, the wrong woman when he was getting married. I mean, this is stupid stuff that they could come up with and say, look at all the things that he did. And so if your life were recounted through all the bad things, you would be a questionable person. And, and so the people's history of the United States that's uh, very old now, actually. I think it came out in like 2000, if I'm not mistaken. And then you have a more modern example of hating on America's history, and that is the 69 Project, written by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And this was basically a thesis argument to say that America's founding was to preserve and protect slavery 
full stop. Like that's the only thing America was here to do, preserve and protect slavery. And, 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 and countless historians say that Nicole Hannah-Jones is way off in regards to her historical research, in regards to her premise, in regards to the examples, and, and very much so in regards to her lack of uh, footnotes. You've got to back up your claims with footnotes, with, with bibliographies that say, here's where I found that. And, and so countless historians talk about how off it is. George Will of the Washington Post says it's malicious and historically inaccurate. Damon Linker of the Week says it's sensation, sensationalistic, reductionistic, and ten, ten, uh, what is that? Tendentious. Uh, Philip Magnus of the National Review uh, said the uh, project provides a distorted economic history borrowed from bad scholarship of the new history of capitalism. Rich Lowry writes that the project leaves out unwelcome facts about slavery, smears the revolution, distorts the constitution, and misrepresents the founding era and Lincoln. And so what you have right now, where we are living right now, is a lot like what we'll see in the first couple of chapters of First Kings, that there is this underlying un subversive force that is going to undermine everything that made Israel great, everything that made Israel influential, powerful, strong, safe, secure, prosperous. And those things were the influence of God's word upon their national conscience. And we're there right now. We're there right now. People, under, subversive forces through the educational system, teaching children, teaching our young, to disregard America's history as thoroughly racist and evil so that we have to redefine America according to you know, whatever agenda they have to recreate the country. And so instead of a America plus Christianity, the aim is for an America minus Christianity. And what was freedom of religion, the founders intense, intention is becoming freedom from religion. And so all that to say this, we are absolutely very much uh, in league, in line with the content of First and Second Kings, 100%. This is why I chose First and Second Kings because of what we're seeing happen in our culture right now. And I want to walk through these books giving you guidance because at the end of the day, America is going to do what America is going to do. I'm not the president. You're not the president uh, unless he is watching and Let's repent and turn to God. Amen. Um, but we're not legislators. Most of us, we're not, we're not going to have the power to enact Christian laws. And that's not what I'm saying we should do. I am saying, however, though, let's look at these books through the lens of what are the values? What are the things that God's people, you, must do and believe and receive in order to grow and be strong in spite of the decay of the culture around you? You can't stop the decay around you, but you can see God stop the decay inside of you. And not just stop the decay inside of you, but actually prosper you and bless you and succeed you in spite of everything that you see. What we see through First and Second Kings is that God always has a people. He always has someone reserved for himself. He always has a voice for his people. Whether that voice is Elijah or Elisha, or whether that voice is a king, a, a president or a leader like Jehu or Josiah or Hezekiah. And these names will become more important to you as we go through the text. But this is the point that I'm making is we have to see 
what we must do as our culture and world does what it's going to do. Got it? So that is the cultural context. Now let's look at the hard facts of the book of First and Second Kings, and I want to walk you through this. Uh, first off, we don't know who wrote First and Second Kings. There's this bunch of ideas about whether it was written by several people or was it compiled by Ezra after the exile. We don't know. Uh, the genre of the book, narrative history, 400 years, but it is theological history. And what you're going to see here is that time and time again, God is not concerned necessarily with who's on the throne. He's not concerned with who's on the throne, but he's, he's concerned with who's listening to his voice. And that's huge. That's huge. God's not concerned with who's in the White House. God's concerned with who is in his house. God's concerned with who's listening to his voice. And we're going to learn that again and again. That's going to be a repeated theme in this book. Uh, it begins with David, uh, the end of David's era, uh, around 970 B.C., uh, it begins also with Solomon building the temple and his pa palace, and then it ends with national devastation and exile to Babylon. The last king of Israel, is uh, uh, his eyes are gouged out right after they kill all of his sons in front of him, and then he's sent off into prison in Babylon. Dark, dark moment in Israel's history, but nonetheless reality, okay? So it's that time frame, again, 970 to 561 B.C., there are good kings, there are evil kings, and each king, and this is important, has an epitaph, uh, whether they followed the Lord or not. Like the end of the, <laughs> the end of their lives is not defined by, you know, what was the what was the market doing? You know, how was Wall Street? Uh, were they in a recession or depression? Well, none of that mattered. What mattered was, did they follow the Lord or did they not? Did they follow the Lord? because? You'll see this aligns on a regular basis. If they followed the Lord, the nation prospered. If they didn't, the nation did not prosper. And so the question is not, how is the economy? The question is, are our leaders following the Lord? Are, is, is the nation turning to God or not? Because God can override what the leaders do if God's people pray and seek his face. I mean, that's, that's First Chronicles, actually, Second Chronicles. But nonetheless, you, you get the idea here that what, what First and Second Kings is doing is, is teaching God's people how to live in spite of the decay and corruption around them. Okay. Also, true and false prophets. Like there are good and evil kings, there are also true and false prophets throughout the book, and we have to be aware of that. That is true as of right now in the church. But most importantly, God rules all nations, not just Israel. And let's just take a look at that real clearly. Okay, so maybe you're on the side of, well, I don't believe that America has any kind of, you know, relationship to God. And I don't believe all this stuff about the founders being influenced by Christianity. Okay, fine. You can believe that if you want. It's not historically accurate, but fine. But here's the reality. God does rule all nations. And he will use the nations as he sees fit. In fact, he uses the nation of Babylon to judge his own people, the nation of Israel. And Babylon never had a covenant with God. And Babylon did not have any kind of Jewish founding or, you know, Torah undergirding its uh, formulation? Uh, no. Babylon was pagan, godless, reckless, destructive, and yet God uses them for his purposes in Israel's life. And how much more should we see that in our day and age? Like, what is God doing with China right now to judge America? What is God doing with Russia to expose something in America? Well, we don't know. God, God ultimately knows, and history eventually tells us the facts, right? We find that out later. And that's why it's not really about where the market is and how the economy is doing right now. It's about where is the cultural center in terms of our heart? Where is the heart of our country? Are we turning toward God or turning away from God? And as they did in, in First and Second Kings, we as a country, I believe, are turning away from God. And finally, the main theme, and this is most important, the main theme of First and Second Kings is this. There is one God in Israel. 
there is one God and no other gods are gods. And in your life, there is one God. There is one Lord. There is one who will watch over you, protect you, preserve you, sustain you, and succeed you. And that is Jesus Christ, the Lord God of heaven and earth. So that's the outline, if you will, the, the, the contextual information about First and Second Kings. I want to go for a couple more things that we're going to see as we study First and Second Kings. Again, first episode of this, of this season, we got to do some foundation laying, and that's all I'm doing right now, and we'll do a little bit of uh, study in just a moment. Big takeaways from this, these two books. It's really not about the kings, and you're going to see that again and again. It's not about who's on the throne. I already said that. It's about who's walking with God. God is working in the good and bad kings of the nation. And, and maybe this is the best news that you could hear today. God is working when Ahab is on the throne and Jezebel, his wife, is destroying God's people. Like God is still working. I mean, that's, that's the most, I guess, positive thing you can learn from 1 Kings is that even when there's a wicked king, even when there's someone who is totally about himself ruling the nation, God is still going to use that and work through that. Uh, the kings are not judged by their successes, but by how they honored the Lord as God. Um, this is another point I just kind of want to highlight, and, and you see this repeatedly in the lineage of the kings. Your daddy doesn't define you, so you know you'll have um, you'll have a King Hezekiah whose father was a pagan, but Hezekiah follows the Lord. You'll have Josiah who follows the Lord, but where he came from, they didn't follow the Lord. Your daddy doesn't define you. Just because your ancestry didn't worship the Lord doesn't mean that you're going to be a pagan, godless person and God can't use you mightily. In fact, some of the greatest kings had pagan dads. Like some of the greatest, most righteous kings had pagan dads. Your dad does not defi define you. Amen. That's, that's good for somebody today. I don't know. Um, this point, God is looking for people who acknowledge him as the one true king regardless of popular opinion. We're going to see that most importantly around the time of Elijah. And when we get to Elisha, this really picks up this theme. Servants move events forward in powerful ways. Not kings, not prophets, servants. Are you a servant? Are you ready to serve God wherever he has you? And, and we see that in the life of Elisha. And then God is intimately involved uh, in the politics of the nation. Some people say, oh, Christians should stay out of politics. Why? Politics are how we live as a nation, as a people, as a group. Politics is about policy. How are we going to raise our kids, educate them, uh, feed our families, all those kind of things? How are we going to relate to each other as neighbors? That's politics. And, and, and God is thoroughly, intimately involved in the politics of the nations of ancient times, and he is thoroughly involved in ours as well. And no Christian should not go and bury their heads in the sand and act like everything is fine and just wait until Jesus comes. We have to be salt. We have to be light. We have to be influencing our nation for good. Uh, let's see. This is, I think, finally, yes. Ultimately, God's will... Not human advances determine the outcome of history. So, you know, in First and Second Kings, you're going to have kings that thoroughly hate God and hate his prophets and kill his prophets and destroy the people who speak up for him. Yes, but God's will is still accomplished. God's will prevails. And, and, and that is the, those are the big takeaways from this incredible book. And now, to finish off episode one of this season... I want to talk to you about the outline of our study because it's important that we understand what to expect every time you tune into the deep dive. There are three new segments. If you remember last year, I think we did what it meant, what it means, and why it matters. 
But we changed those segments this year, and because it's narrative history, we're not we're not studying an epistle, a, a doctrinal dissertation of how Christians should live and believe. We're studying narrative history, very different genre of biblical text here in First and Second Kings from Romans. So we've changed the segments, and the segments are through the text, talk about it, and tap into the truth. I'm going to take us through the text. Just going to go verse by verse looking at it, giving you the details. We're going to talk about that and how we should read it. And then finally, what is the big truth to take away from it? And so with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure some of you are like, oh, can we get to the Bible now? Can we start studying the Bible now? And all of the stuff that I've said up until now really did matter. I hope it helped you understand the contextual information, why this book relates to us today, and how we're going to apply it as we go through the text this season on the Deep Dive. But with all that being said, let's go through the text. We're going to go through, uh, I think we're going to go through 10 verses today. So let's get started with through the text. Yeah, so through the text. Okay. Bible cam, the Insta Bible cam, I call it. Here's the first passage that we're going to look at. First uh, Kings chapter one, verse one. Now King David was old and advanced in years. Now think about this. This is David, mighty, powerful David, man after God's own heart. David, David who killed Goliath. David who defeated all the Philistines. David who never lost a battle in his life. David who led the nation, inaugurated great, positive, godly worship. David got old. All leaders get old. All great heroes get old. And right there on the first page, we're going to be drawn into a reality that we're going to see repeatedly in 1 Kings, and that is this. No matter how great or how evil the king, they all die. Which means, don't put your hope in earthly kings. We all need a better king, and that better king is the eternal king, Jesus Christ. So right there on the first page, we're talking about Jesus already. Right there, first verse, Jesus. David got old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman. Now look at, their, look at their response. And this is going to pick up the first theme of first Kings. Let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the King, and let her wait on the King and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the King may be warm. Uh, so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. By the way, Shunammite, that's also the, uh, the land of the woman that Solomon obsesses over in Song of Solomon. She's a Shunammite. But anyway, they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So he doesn't have sex with this woman. But look at the key word. What do we see repeated? Let a young woman right? Be found for the king. So they brought a beautiful young woman, a beautiful young woman. And then later, the young woman was very beautiful. Repeated words in the ancient texts are key. Repeated words. What's the repeated word? Young, beautiful, young, beautiful woman, young, beautiful woman. For old, dying, decrepit king, young, beautiful woman. Okay, these are important terms. Because what we're seeing is, what's being portrayed in the life of the nation is, Beauty and youth are worshipped. Beauty and youth are everything. Oh, the king's dying. What's the solution? Let's, let's find a hottie and put, him in, put her in the bed with him. Like, <laughs> that's what you see here on page one of 1 Kings. And it's betraying this undercurrent of moral decay in the pinnacle of Israel's history. Now remember, remember we talked about this earlier, that Israel is at the pinnacle under David. And just in case you didn't remember, let me bring you back to our roadmap, right? So, so we're right here 
uh, right around the pinnacle of Israel's history, and there's success, and there's um, prosperity, and there's, uh, there's plenty of money, and everybody is happy and secure. And what happens is they turn to external, surfacey realities as the ultimate things, right? They turn to youth and beauty. They turn to sex. They turn, oh, keep the king warm. Give him, give him, basically, let's hire a prostitute for the king, you know? And, and thankfully, you know, David doesn't know her. He doesn't even have the strength to know her, which again betrays the fact that he's dying. He's, this is David. I mean, David never stopped chasing women. That's just a reality. We even saw that at the end of his life and throughout his life. But he has no strength for it here, in spite of the fact that everybody thinks that that's the answer. What does that say right now about our country? What does that say about our, con our, our culture? Can we not also say right now to our con cultural context that youth and beauty are considered answers to everything? Answers to our value, answers to our self-worth, answers to our calling in life. Like, like I think about Instagram influencers. Like that is, that is a thing now because of what? Because of the girl or guy's good looks, beauty, handsomeness, attractiveness, makes them influential. Like, and when you have a culture where beauty and, and, and youth are worshipped, this is a sign. This should, a red flag should go up and you should say, something's wrong here. Because on the heels of David's life is Solomon's legacy. And for the large portion of Solomon's life, it's not about beauty and it's not about youth. It's about wisdom and obeying God. And so when you see a culture like Israel here at the end of David's reign, looking to beauty and youth to be the answer to a dying age or era in the midst of a highly prosperous era, watch out. The answer to a prosperous country is wisdom. We need wisdom to know how to handle prosperity because honestly, prosperity is a greater area of temptation than poverty. More, more people walk away from God because of prosperity than poverty. That's just a reality. James chapter one says, James chapter two says, God has chosen the poor in the world to reveal his truth to them. They're more open to it more often than those who are exceedingly prosperous. Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so when we have prosperity, we, we don't need youth and beauty. As, as, as the fine as those things are, there's nothing inherently wrong with youth and beauty. There is something inherently wrong when we look to those things as the valuation of our society or the valuation of our very personhood. Consider for yourself, do you see youth and beauty as the answers to life's problems? Do you see youth and beauty as the solution to whatever is wrong with you? Um, I think we're living in that kind of context. I think we're absolutely living in a time where we worship youth, we worship beauty, and we don't live wisely. And that is fundamentally what first kings up. I mean, it's a weird opening, right? So it's, it's a totally weird opening. We get this guy, he's dead, he's dying, and, and his servants come up with this great plan. Let's have you sleep with a young woman and, and maybe that'll keep you alive. Like <laughs> when, when you're doing those kind of things, something's wrong. The reality is that Israel needs a new king. Now, let's look at how this youth and beauty um, 
uh, idolatry flows into the first problem we meet in First Kings, which is this, this kind of civil war that happens right on the heels of David's death or dying years. And a kid in his house, once again, uh, decides to make himself king. This already happened with Absalom. We talked about this in the life of David two seasons ago. Absalom decided he was going to make himself king. David says nothing. Absalom's handsome. He attracts a whole bunch of people around him. And by God's intervention, Absalom's reign is short-lived and David succeeds and maintains the kingdom. But there was a younger brother of Absalom named Adonijah who follows in Absalom's footsteps. And look at how the text treats this moment in, in, Ad, in Adonijah's rebellion. Verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, What have you done thus and so? Or why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. So right there, the scripture is trying to teach us, look at the character here. He's following in Absalom's footsteps, just like Absalom was handsome. So he was. He was young than, younger than Absalom. He was, you know, the next in line of the worship of beauty and youth. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So... Again, the point that is being spoken into the text here is (laughs) youth and beauty are attractive political forces. Youth and beauty are attractive political forces. Whenever I see actors and actresses and singers and and musicians and talented artists and and young, attractive people speaking politically, I'm always like, believe the opposite. (laughs) Whatever they're saying, that's how I see it. Because... Young people don't know what they think they know. And beauty is fading, right? The end of Proverbs. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, But in a country where there's a ton of prosperity, you've got to watch out for the idolatry of beauty and youth. And and notice, again, back to the text here, you've got Joab following uh, Adonijah. You've got Abiathar, the priest. Abiathar was the last surviving priest from um, Saul's uh, massacre of the priests of Nob, the, the, the house of the priesthood, priesthood of Nob. He's the one that is saved by David and barely escapes and serves David for years. And yet he is drawn out into this rebellion with Adonijah. And, and so you see right away that not only is there this youth and beauty cult that starts to divide the nation. Look at what Adonijah does next in verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent's stone. That is also a very important textual note right there. Who is the serpent? Serpent is the devil. So he goes to this place called the serpent stone, which is beside Engrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon or or Solomon his brother. So right off the bat, we are seeing what? We are seeing this cult of youth and beauty, but we are also seeing that it has this religious uh, veneer. It has this spiritualized veneer. Okay, are are you following along with me here? This is so important, so key that you get it. There is a cult of youth and beauty with a religious veneer today. 
a cult of youth and beauty where we think, okay, young people know what they're doing, so let's follow them, or look at that person, he's attractive, or she's attractive, let's listen to them, they should lead us, they should be involved. And, and this is a disaster waiting to happen because it's not biblical spirituality. It's a very fleshly, uh, lustful, um, back to the text, serpent's stone-ish uh, religiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone is spiritual. Uh, you ever get into a conversation with somebody and say, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. Of course you are. Every person is spiritual. It's just a matter of what spirit they are uh, relating to. And so in a, cult in a culture where there's very little wisdom and there's a dying age, so to speak, youth and beauty become these superficial things that we seek to sustain ourselves, and they can't. And fundamentally, what we are seeing today in our country is a lack of wisdom, uh, a, 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 a huge influence of follow the beautiful people or the young people, and this divisive kind of nature of uh, self-centered spirituality, which is exactly what we see in the first 10 verses of 1 Kings. In the first 10 verses, right there. Now, now this, all, thankfully, is not the end of the story, and we're going to talk about that next time, but we've got to show you these things in order to uh, talk about how they relate today. So let's talk about it. Yes, talk about it. Okay. Um, fundamentally, 1 Kings, right off the bat, is saying one thing to us. you got to know the difference between alluring and anointed. David was anointed. David was the anointed king of Israel, and he was called and appointed by God and gifted by God to deliver Israel. But as he got older and the mistakes of his reign, you know, were exposed and and all, all great kings still make mistakes and still sin many, many ways. David is no exception. But as he's kind of passing on, there is this turn from seeking the Lord's anointed to looking at the alluring in the world, right? This is, this is what's happening in our culture today. I, I see this in the church. The church so badly, Christians so badly want to be attractive to non-Christians, want to be important, want to be influencers, want to be, you know, have a voice. And, and, and so we will turn from, this is important, from anointing, which only God can give, to alluring, which the world can definitely give. You know, I, I always say, anybody can be attractive, it's just, it's just, a, matter, it's just a matter of how much money it, <laughs> it requires. But there's a, a, this turn toward, how can we be alluring? And every Christian listening to me right now needs to hear this. Don't worry about being alluring. Concern yourself with being anointed. First John chapter 2, you have an anointing. If you are born again, you have an anointing from the Holy One. God's Spirit lives in you. You are anointed. And, and while I am absolutely a fan of you taking care of your body, of you looking the best that you possibly can, I'm not saying, I'm not saying be ugly in Jesus' name. I'm not saying that at all. But consider for yourself what are you doing to feed the anointing? What are you doing to recognize that the anointing of God upon you is what makes you who you are? And with that in mind, we go to the final segment today, which is let's tap into the truth. All right. So one thing I want to put up real quickly, and this is, 
this might be overwhelming, but let me put it up real quick, is this house of David. And what you're going to see is that David, who comes from Jesse, uh, he has, look at this, he has all these wives. <laughs> he was a womanizer, and his son Solomon will fall in his stead. Um, he has this, then, he, then his sons, in the record of their history, Absalom, beautiful, right? Amnon, killed by Absalom because he raped Tamar. Uh, Chileab, we don't hear about, he died sometime young. But then the fourth in line, so Absalom one, Amnon two, Chileab three, fourth in line for the throne, naturally is Adonijah. And Adonijah, listen to this very carefully, the guy who it would make perfect sense to be the successor to David is not ultimately the successor to David. Okay, what is that saying about our world, about our lives? God does not choose who we choose. God does not elect who we elect. God does not think like we think. And fundamentally, when it comes to the anointing of God on his church, the church has to remember and remind itself continually that what looks natural and normal, what looks and makes sense in the flesh is not necessarily what is right in the spirit. I wonder for your life, what, where, where are you with that? Where are you looking to the natural means of our age, the, the allure of beauty and youth, the allure of whatever, the material, surfacey veneers that we can put forward and think, this is what brings me value, this is what makes me what I am, and realize that is a fool's errand. It is a, uh, it's the end of the rainbow with no pot of gold. You're never going to get what you think you deserve and, and want out of that pursuit. Rather focus on the anointing that God has put in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God with you, living in you. There, there is no greater privilege on this earth than to know you are God's and to understand and finally leave you with this, that God is building his church no matter what his world is yelling about. Like that, that is what we see here in the first text. You see um, Zadok and, not. I'm sorry, not Zadok, you see Joab and, Zer and Abiathar the priest, Joab, David's right-hand man, and Abiathar the priest following into this culture of fleshly, selfish desire for my own glory. And you think, wow, that was fast. They, they really abandoned truth fast. And it happens right now in our country. It happens all the time. There's never almost a week or a month where I don't see another Christian leader abdicating some orthodox measure of Christianity. There's never a time where I don't see someone else falling into sin because of the lure and the beauty of our age, this cult of beauty and youth. There's never a time, and we see it constantly with pastors falling all the time because of the allure of this idolatry. And, and, and so the world gets all worked up about that and, and worked into that, and a lot of church people will get worked up into that. But you are his church. You are his chosen ones. And his anointing that dwells in you is the most important part of you. And that must be your focus. That's got to be central to who you are. And maybe today we end with that prayer for our own lives. Like, like God, build me. Build me in what you want me to be. And guard my eyes from this alluring cult of beauty and youth. Not, not that there's something wrong with those things, again, but that I don't sabotage my, 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 my um, 
significance in you by serving these things that are never going to last and satisfy. Amen. That's episode one, guys. Um, Yep, not much Bible text today. Again, uh, foundational stuff today. Like, share, subscribe to the channel. If you like the content, give us a like. I thank God that you were here with me today. Um, Hope you like the new studio digs. Hope you're engaged and ready for what is going to be a fantastic study through these incredible books and how God is going to speak to you and to us in our cultural age of crazy. Guys, God bless you. I'll see you on Tuesday night next week for The Deep End. Take care. Good night.